Welcome to Fantastic History. I'm Sarah. And I'm Clay. We're a husband and wife duo who enjoy telling each other about amazing events, people, and mysteries throughout history. Now today is a very special day. So special. Because today, y'all are listening to our 50th episode. Wow. We have done 50 of these. Can you believe it? I can't. I thought we'd be out by three. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we've we've done it. We're almost at a year. Yeah. 50 episodes under our belt. That's pretty exciting. So we thought we'd mark the occasion actually kind of the same way we marked the 20th episode, which is by doing a double header where each of us tells a shorter story. Mm -hmm. So the one I brought today hits in a couple of special ways for me. So it's got some serious 80s and 90s nostalgia and it's true crime. Oh, it's 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 everything you love. I know. So, I mean, don't worry. I haven't forgotten my promise from the Lizzie Borden episode uh, that I'd wait a few months to do another murder story. Uh, so if you're reaching for the proverbial dial because you're not in the mood for grisly details today, you can officially cast those fears from your mind. This is true crime. It is not murder. Hmm, okay. So, honey, let me ask you something. Do you remember the Noid? The Noid, yeah. The Noid was, um, well, well, you, you, you explain it. Okay. So the Noid was... It's the, hard to explain. Yeah, he was the Domino's <laughs> pizza mascot for about a decade, starting in the mid-80s. So he was this little claymation character. Ugh. He wore like a red, like a bodysuit, almost like a Britney Spears <laughs> <laughs> yeah. red bodysuit with bunny ears yeah. for whatever reason. And his whole deal was trying to stop customers from getting their pizza in 30 minutes or less. Totally bizarre, totally 80s. Yes. <laughs> but that was like, that was the big thing in pizza back then. Like having it delivered to you in 30 minutes or less or it's free. Mm. Right? Like yeah. that was a big, big thing. Every like fast food, pizza delivery, restaurant, whatever, like they were all promising the 30 minutes or less. Or sometimes I think it was even 20 minutes or less or whatever. But it's worth mentioning that that promotion actually originated with Domino's. Okay. They were the first ones to do 30 minutes or less. But so the Noids whole deal was coming up with all these goofy, like, wily Coyote-type contraptions and scenarios to stop you from getting your pizza on time. Of course. <clears throat> but he's never able to stop Domino's. Like, <laughs> he can stop the other guys, but he can't, you know, Domino's is getting it to you, right? So even if you didn't live through this period of time or if you don't really remember the Noid, I think you can kind of get a feel for him if you think of him as basically the tricks rabbit, but for pizza. Yeah, that's that's a pretty good analogy. Right? Silly noid pizzas for, you know, whoever. Everyone. Yeah, pizzas for everyone. Except for you, I guess. Like, Yeah, it's a little sad. Yeah, well, he brought it on himself. So the Noid became a super popular character. Like this dude was a household name. You and I have not seen the Noid in probably th almost 30 years. But I said, do you remember the Noid? And you said yes. Well, I have I have seen little bits and pieces of him because he exists in a very, uh, in, in, in the zeitgeist, in a corner of the zeitgeist. Yeah, right? very nostalgic for anybody who was around them. But like he was very known. Yeah. Very known. <clears throat> he was almost like a meme 
if we had had those back at the time, he would have been in like every freaking meme. Well, he had uh, he had toys. He had a video game. He had more than one, which I'm actually going to get to in just a second here. He had multiple video games. Weird. So weird. Very weird. It's like, but people loved these commercials. Um, so they were they were so popular that only two years after Domino started the campaign using the Noid, CBS actually gave them the green light to do a Saturday morning cartoon about the Noid. Oh my god. Yeah. So it actually never even made it to air. I don't know if they even filmed a pilot. I mean, that might be some lost media. We could look into maybe yeah, there is be. a pilot of the Noids, which is what <laughs> it was called. But it never actually made it to air on a Saturday morning because like all of these people were up in arms about it because this is basically just a 30-minute commercial for Domino's aimed at children every week. Yeah, and, and to be fair, in case you don't know, maybe you're younger, most cartoons were advertisements already. Yeah, in the 80s especially. <laughs> yeah, the 70s and 80s were all about selling the toys. Mm-hmm. The toys came first, and then the comer- then the to- uh, cartoon came after to sell it. So Transformers are a huge example of that, Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Yes. So this is not abnormal, but I guess it might be a little unique in that it was to sell... I'm sure there were others like it, but mm-hmm. but it, it was a corporate mascot commercial. Right, which is really quite odd because he didn't start out as a toy. Like he became a toy, like you were saying, like there was all kinds of stuff, you know, figurines, stuffed animals, bumper stickers, T-shirts, etc. And like you mentioned, there were also two video games. So, but he was just like a corporate mascot. Like he didn't mm. start out like Transformers just being a toy. Yeah. So these two video games, um, Capcom's Yo Noid for the <laughs> NES, and then a computer game called Avoid the Noid. So that was actually the tagline of the advertising campaign, Avoid the Noid. It's zippy, it's memorable, and as George Lucas would say, it's like poetry, it rhymes. Oh, God. <laughs> so it's perfect, right? What could go wrong? I can't imagine where this is going because, well, please continue. Enter Kenneth Lamar Noid. Oh. Kenneth was a 22-year-old resident of Albany, Georgia, who was believed to be schizophrenic, though he was never officially diagnosed. And he was convinced that the Avoid the Noid commercials were aimed at him specifically. Mm. He thought he was trapped in a constant mental battle with Tom Monahan, the owner of Domino's, and that these commercials were Tom's way of destroying Kenneth Noid's life and reputation by telling people to avoid the Noid. Wow. Yeah. And here's the thing. Here's the thing about that. Now, Tom Monahan's hands are clean in this. That's not where I'm going. But you know how people are. You know that every damn day of this man's life, every time he did or said something even slightly out of pocket, people would respond by telling everybody in hearing distance to avoid the noid. Like there's no possible way Kenneth wasn't absolutely tormented <laughs> over sharing a name with this demented pizza rabbit. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Yeah, And it probably wasn't just when he got like into a spat with somebody either, but probably like nine times out of ten when somebody heard his last name, like you're being introduced for the first time, they're going to be like, oh, like the Noid, avoid the Noid, LOL. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, every damn yeah. day. Like that yeah. That would make you pretty an- uh, like annoyed. Annoyed. To, yeah, like, <laughs> oh, I can't. I cannot imagine. 
And then especially if you're like not in the best place mentally, like the oh, ec- the extra strain that's going to put on you. Sure. Unfathomable. So things came to a head on January 30th, 1989, approximately three years after the Noid's first commercial appearance. Kenneth drove about 200 miles north to Chambly, a studio, um, sorry. Kenneth drove about 200 miles north to Chambly, a suburb of Atlanta, and walked into the local Domino's chain during the lunch rush with a 357 Magnum revolver in hand. Oh, no. Yeah, not good. Now, I don't know why he chose that location. It's not like it's the original. I think the original is in Detroit somewhere. It's not like a headquarters. It's not even the closest one to his home. But that's the one he chose. Yeah. And for more than five hours, Kenneth held the two Domino's employees hostage, waiting for his demands to be met. The main thing he wanted going in, predictably, was to speak to Tom Monahan. Okay. But then he changed his mind and told negotiators that he wanted $100,000 and a white stretch limousine to act as a getaway car. Huh. Then he changed his mind again and demanded a library copy of the book The Widow's Son by Robert Anton Wilson. He's really going through it. He is not having the best day. Yeah. So The Widow's Son is an interesting choice because it's the second book in a trilogy that, while it's fictional, it focuses a lot on the Freemasons and the Illuminati. So it's got a very specific vibe to it, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Like, that's the kind of book that you read if you're maybe kind of easily swayed, like you would join QAnon or something. You okay. get into all these conspiracy theories and stuff. I mean, obviously, like his personal conspiracy theory about the Noid is what's leading to the situation to start with. Yeah, which is which which borders out of conspiracy theory and into complete madness. But I guess that's yeah. obvious. Right. So none of his rotating demands ended up being met. Even the simple one of getting the library book, like the copy of the library book, even though that would have been pretty easy, because ultimately, nobody needed to meet his demands. Oh. During hour five of the hostage crisis, he asked the employees to go in the back and make him a pizza because he was getting hungry. That's fair enough. Yeah. They did as he asked, and while his hands were full of pizza, which I can only assume he received in 30 minutes or less, (laughs) they escaped through the back door. Okay. Because he, he put the gun in his lap, not even on the table, set it in his lap, and started eating his pizza. And they were like, bye. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he got a free pizza. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't for nothing, I guess. Um, But he was arrested. You know, there were cops all over the place already. So Kenneth was arrested on the scene and charged with kidnapping and a couple of other more minor things. But was ultimately found to be not guilty by reason of insanity. And he was committed to Georgia's Mental Health Institute. The incident made international news because it was just such a wild turn of events. I don't think anybody could have reasonably expected something so drastic and so dire to come out of these goofy ass commercials. No. I mean, not in a million years. But this was a PR nightmare for Mm. Domino's. But despite that, they kept on using the Noid in their commercials. It didn't slow him down even a little bit. And I guess the thought there was like, no way is this going to happen again. Like, this is an isolated incident, right? Like, 
And there's no such thing as bad press. That's true. So, folks, we're talking about the Noid more than ever before. It was actually after the hostage situation that both of those video games were released. Wow. Yeah. The Noid's time in the spotlight came to an abrupt end on February 23rd, 1995, though, when Kenneth Noid died by suicide, motivated by his continued belief that the ad campaign was mocking him. Mm. Yeah. Domino's has always denied that Kenneth's death and the discontinuation of the Noid had nothing to do with each other, but the timeline is pretty damning because after he died, they never made a new one. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was probably a good time to do it either way. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think by then it had been nine years that they'd been using the same guy. But after that, the Noid became a mostly forgotten figure from 80s and 90s pop culture, although Domino's has trotted him back out a few times in more recent years for the sake of nostalgia. Mm -hmm. Additional video games actually were released (laughs) in 2011 and 2017. Oh my God. Yeah. And the Noid was prominently featured in a Domino's themed pinball machine produced in 2016. He was also used in ad campaigns in 2011, 2017, and even as recently as 2021. Uh, okay. yeah. yeah i don't think they'll ever fully bring him back like not just because those kind of commercials aren't really the thing anymore but also because he's like a freaky little goblin <laughs> it was like very much a product <laughs> of his time yeah so it was that early like the, the stuff you see on early mtv <laughs> yes. the creepy kind of slightly gory gross mm-hmm. stuff mm-hmm. that was that was him all that was all about him oh yeah but i do wonder like he might have had much stronger longevity. Like he might've been the original Geico gecko or like Mm. even had the longevity of like the tricks rabbit. If his career hadn't been cut short by tragedy. Bizarre. Very bizarre. I actually remember bringing this up to you like a few years ago where I was like, do you remember the Noid? Like, why did they, I wonder what happened to the Noid. Like, he just kind of disappeared. What's that about? And then I just kind of forgot about it again. Yeah. And just every now and then, because I was spent so much time in front of the TV during the nine years of his reign of terror, <laughs> like that he just every now and then will pop up in my mind and I see this like weird goblin rabbit thing. Yeah. Smashing a pizza with a giant mallet. And I'm like, <laughs> whatever happened to that guy? Well, now you know. It's 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 rare that that um, advertising campaigns end so dramatically. Yeah, that is really unusual. It's, I mean, usually just like okay, we got bored. Like yeah, th- like going back to Geico again with that little pig. Yeah, the first time my dad and I saw that pig commercial, like we laughed until we cried. <laughs> he just like leaning out the window, wee, with his little pinwheels or whatever. We laughed so much, and then. A few months later, they did a second one. We're like, oh, my God, this is great. And then by like the fourth or fifth commercial with this pig, I was like, if I ever see this pig again, I'm going to cut my own head off. Like, I'm so sick of this fucking pig. Yeah. You got to be really careful with that type of stuff. Yeah. The Noid, I still don't understand. I don't think anyone does, but it, uh, yeah, you remember it. He's a cross between like Wile E. Coyote, the tricks rabbit, and then whatever like marketing executives did the most cocaine. Yeah. I would say. Yeah. Wow. What a, (laughs) 
What a crazy story. Yeah, kind of a weird one. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. But I but I like it. Oh, thank you. Well, that brings us to my topic. I'm so excited. Which couldn't be any more different <laughs> from yours. So it's not about pizza. It's not about pizza or really anything you've talked about. Weird. But it should be pretty interesting. Okay. So, Sarah, um, the life of Julie Abuji or La Mupa, was turbulent and bombastic. Ooh. Well, such is to, ex- to be expected as a chaotic and scandalous member of the late 17th century French noble class. Oh. Her exploits were known across Paris. She was a fighter. Mm-hmm. A world-class singer. Oh, my God. A lover. Mm-hmm. And a fugitive <gasps> who received a personal pardon from the king twice. Oh, damn, girl. <laughs> Her story's been picked over for centuries trying to separate the truth from the many rumors and stories that started while she was still just a teenager. Oh, my. So she's part real human mm-hmm. and part legend. <gasps> But her story is dope. Oh my god, I'm so excited. So Julie de Abagi was born around 1673 to Gaston de Abagi. He was serving as the master of the horse for King Louis XIV. As one of France's noble family, she grew up well at the riding school of Trilay Palace in Paris and then in the court of the Palace of Versailles. Oh, nice. Now, her father ensured that his daughter received a quality education. And in addition to that, Gaston was a very accomplished swordsman. So naturally, he taught Julie to study the blade. (gasps) She's Arya Stark. She is Arya Stark. Oh, my God. At the age of 12, she had taken up fencing and excelled against her mostly male opponents. Yes. Because fencing was not really a hobby of many women at the time. Mm Mm-hmm. At the age of 14, she became the mistress to Count de Armanac. soon after she married a man named Mapa. However, in less than a year, her husband left Paris and Julie stayed. It isn't clear what happened between her and the Count after this because they were still romantically involved during her marriage. Still going at it, okay. But she soon became romantically involved in someone else, a fencing master named Saran. She and Saran fled Paris after Saran killed a man in a duel. Oh, uh-oh. So she left the noble, you know, the noble um, uh, lifestyle. Right. And they traveled Paris performing fencing demonstrations for a living. And and probably starting earlier than this, but definitely at this time, she was dressing in male clothing, but not to pass as a male. Just that's how she dressed. She preferred to dress in male clothing. All right, Catherine Hepburn. During their travels and performances for livelihood, they would also sing as part of their, you know, their show. People were so entranced by Julia's voice that she was encouraged to apply for formal training, which she received at the prestigious Massey Opera House. As with fencing, she excelled at singing opera despite having no previous training in music. By 1690, her relationship with uh, the, with this guy had ended, and she had begun a new relationship with someone whose name has been lost to history, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But we do know that she was a young, blonde <gasps> merchant girl. Oh, my God. Who had become infatuated with Julie. Yes. 
This did not go over well with her parents. I don't care. So the girl was sent to a convent. Oh my God. As was, you know, I'm sure that happened all the time. So what did Julie do? Oh my God. She posed as a nun in training. Oh my God. And snuck into the convent to resume the affair. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And to rescue her lover. Now, escaping a convent shouldn't be easy, but it isn't exactly Rikers Island either, I assume. Yeah, I would think not. That being said, Julie's plan was mad. She stole the body of a nun who had died recently. Oh, okay. Placed it in the girl's bed and set it on fire. Uh! Then using that as a diversion, the pair escaped into the country. Wow. Leaving behind a charred skeleton that was supposed to be that girl oh my god after all that you'd think it'd be true love yeah right but remember julie was only about 17 at this time oh okay then so it was teenage love oh the affair only lasted three months until the girl returned to her parents i'm sorry all of that for three months hey teenage love oh i'm not a player i just crush a lot with the truth now known julie was convicted in absence of body snatching Kidnapping a nun <laughs> and arson against the convent. Wow, 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 wow. And she was sentenced to death. Come on, man. Now a fugitive of the law, she made a living for herself singing in taverns until she met a drunkard named Marchal, who was also a singer himself. Okay. Or a previous singer. He was, you know, kind of yeah. at the bottom now. Falling on hard times. Yes. He offered to train Julie and encouraged her to apply to the Paris Opera, the premier opera performance in France, and possibly the world. And since, at this point, opera was only about 100 years old, and it was also born in France, I'm sure it was the premier place in the world. So after Marshall became unable to work anymore with her due to his alcoholism, well, Julie headed to Paris. Obvious. But... There was the little matter of her warrant. Ah, uh, that. But that shouldn't be a problem. She just called on her old lover, the Count, <laughs> who persuaded the king to issue her a pardon, which he did. Wow. Thus, she was free and clear to pursue her goal of joining one of the world's great musical companies. Her antics were already known about, so her appearance on stage was met, was met with a lot of interest and excitement. Oh, I bet it was. She performed at many of the Paris Opera's major performances between 1690 and 1694, becoming known under her stage name, uh, La Mopa, short for Mademoiselle de Mopa. Okay. And Mopa was uh, her married name. Oh, wow. You remember. That's bold to keep that. Yeah. All right. She also began a new relationship with another woman, Gabrielle Vincent de Fena. Hell Yeah. Who I believe was another uh, another singer in the company. Nice. Julie, however, could not avoid scandal. I'd hope. Honestly, can you imagine? Do you know how disappointed I would be if you were like, and then she settled down and they <laughs> made pies in the countryside yeah. and we never heard from her again. Not her. I'd be devastated. You're going to love this. In okay. 1697, she attended a ball at the king's court, but she was dressed as a man. Oh. And dressed uh, and carried her fencing foil on her hip. (laughs) 
There was a beautiful young woman in attendance whose attention was being desired by three male suitors. I am going to pee my pants. Well, Julie not only danced with her, but kissed her in full view of the entire ball. Oh my God. And you said 1697? Yeah. Hell yeah, Julie. This enraged the male suitors. (laughs) Die mad. So Julie offered to duel them. (laughs) They agreed to duel at the gardens, and Julie defeated all three of them. Hell yeah. Upon returning to the ball, she was confronted, some stories say, by the king himself, (laughs) uh, because dueling was still illegal. Oh. Couldn't do it. Oh. Oh. However, the law only apparently only applied to men. <gasps> oh my god. So, it's unclear and I and I've read this story and there's there's lots of variations. One is the king was mad at her and was like you're going to pay for this and then his brother came up and said, "Oh, chap, it's 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 just a it's just we're having a laugh. They're having a laugh out there. <laughs> you, what are you going to do? Put this uh. put this beautiful woman to death." Mm-hmm. And he, and he said, "Oh, fine. Fine." pardoned no problem or the story goes that the king said you are in big trouble now and she had to flee or someone else came up to her and said hey you're in big trouble you got to flee who knows what really happened Mm -hmm. whether she was um in big trouble for this and 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 you know she was uh she received another death penalty or or not. I kind um, of imagine it as like an <coughs> an Aon on Pelinor Field situation where they're like, it's illegal for men to duel. And she's like, I am no man. And then she just like snatched up that lady <laughs> on horseback and they rode into the sunset. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, we don't know exactly what happened, but Julie did leave Paris soon okay. after this and settled in Brussels to resume her singing career. Here she continued to perform, and during a performance of Innes, where uh, she was to um, mimic committing suicide, she reportedly actually stabbed herself with a real knife on purpose. Oh, my God. On purpose? On purpose. Oh, my. She became a mistress to the elector of Bavaria. Okay, so she was fine. Oh, yeah. She w- she didn't die. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> But he found her to be too wild. No kidding. Too much to deal with. Really? Was she a handful? Apparently. Mm, interesting. And offered her 40,000 francs to leave. I feel like if she's a handful, you got tiny hands, bro. Sit I, down. She, I, I, she seems like the kind of girl that, you, that I don't think anyone could handle. I mean. But she, but she said, okay, thank you for the money. I will leave. And she left and returned to Paris. Again, either being free to do so or being let back on a second pardon. And she rejoined the Paris Opera and her old lover. You know you got to be more specific. uh, Thevena. Ah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sorry about that. (laughs) By the early 1700s, La Mappa was at the height of her popularity, doing personal performances for nobilities and the king himself. Nice. In 1703, she began another affair with one of the most beautiful women in France, Madame Le Massie de Flossac. Oh, boy, that's a mouthful. It is a mouthful. I barely got it out. The two lived together for two years, which may have been Julie's longest relationship. I was going to say, like, that's basically marriage and retirement for her. Yeah. 
However, in 1705, the madame passed from a fever. Oh, so they were together till like she died, yeah. until the, the other lady died. Yeah. Oh. And this appeared to also be the end for Julie. It is said that she retired from the stage and passed away in a convent at in 1707 at the age of 33. In a convent. In a so, convent, guys. So here's the thing. <laughs> How much of this story is true? Um, All of it, but the last part. She did not die in the convent. She stole another body, <laughs> dressed it in her habit, and like ran away to like start life anew in the Americas where she just you know spread bisexuality and cheer all throughout the colonies and then ran off of a cliff and into the sky where she can still be seen today as the constellation perseus beautiful beautiful ending what a wonderful story yeah was that not is that not it well that could have happened okay well there you go i mean we don't know but 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 i think it's fair to say that she probably did not become a nun uh no um the 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 sexually promiscuous woman repenting of her life of sin and dying alone of unnatural causes Uh uh-huh yeah so yeah we don't know exactly what was made up and what wasn't but the fact that such stories would be made up about such a character sort of validates the kind of person that she was for real right if if that was believable Believable or at least somewhat believable because, you know, back then they were making up stories about the noble class all the time. That was the tabloids. <laughs> right. So they would make up whatever and, and they had to be at least somewhat believable or people would just be thinking they were reading complete fiction. Right. Um, but but she did exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I believe a lot of these, story, these stories are true. And it's just up to sort of your personal interpretation as to what you want to take as true. I personally believe that going to the Americas is a wonderful ending for her. I I think all of the gay relationships were true. Maybe one or two of the not gay ones were maybe true. Um, and then all the rest of it, probably. True. <laughs> okay. All of the stuff that is like badass, I choose to believe. Well, that's my story of the bisexual sword fighter, opera singer, body snatcher, fugitive, cross-dressing beauty. Oh, my God. Are there pictures of her so that I can get one tattooed on me? There are. Um, I mean, there, I know there's not photographs, obviously, but. There are some pictures. Okay. I'm going to find one. I'm going to take it to uh, to my tattoo artist. Well, we'll definitely put them up on Instagram. Hell, yeah. And Twitter. Yeah. At Fantastic H Pod on both. <laughs> and if you have any comments for us, you can send them to fantastichistorypod at gmail.com. Any suggestions for topics, any feedback, criticism? Oh, no. Keep that to yourself. Applause. Mm, that do send. And uh, and until, and, and th- hey, 50 episodes. 50 episodes. Woo! We did it, y'all. Ooh, 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 ooh. Until next time. Bye bye. Bye bye.